Uh, Brigitte, thanks very much. Um, well done for finding the book of Obadiah. It's a helpful little diagram that we had up on the screen then as well. Um, should we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to receive your word, that you would plant your word down deep in us. You'd open up our ears to hear and lead us in your truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how much do we want justice to be done? Justice is something we think about, talk about almost every day. Maybe it's a story about a criminal getting the justice that they deserve. Maybe it's a story that makes us long for justice when it looks as if justice is never going to come. Maybe it's a reminder that human justice, human judgment, isn't always perfect. Justice is something we see from a distance on our computer screens, on our TVs, on the radio, but it's also something we get, up, we, we get involved with close up almost every day. Maybe at work or at school or with friends or acquaintances, perhaps especially um, in our families with our children at home or with extended family elsewhere. Think of all those moments, maybe this last week, when you thought to yourself something like, that isn't fair. How come they got away with that? Something needs to be done. Or maybe a realization that you've been caught out and that you need uh, to face justice of some sort. Well, the book of Obadiah is all about God's perfect justice. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, but it's got a big story to tell. Have a look at verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. Well, hopefully that name Edom is familiar to you. Do you remember the series we've been going through in Genesis? Uh, Edom is the nation that is descended from Esau, Jacob's red-headed, hairy, soup-loving brother. And we heard all about those two brothers um, through those chapters of Genesis. And uh, now we see the two nations that are descended from them. Uh, so up here on the screen, you can see Edom, that's the orange nation to the south of Israel, descended from Jacob. So this book is about, it's directed to, first and foremost, Edom. But what does God say about them? Verse 1 again. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy has sent, was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. So the message is a warning. God is going to use other nations to bring justice upon Edom. But Obadiah doesn't just see a vision about Edom. He sees through Edom to the world. Uh, so here's my attempt to represent that in a diagram. There's Obadiah. He's looking. He's looking at the nation of Edom, and through Edom... He is seeing the world. He's seeing God's perfect justice, not just against Edom, but against the whole world. And that means that his book, even though it's very short, is a book we need to listen to. Because we might not be residents of Edom, but we are inhabitants of the world. And we will all face God's perfect justice one day. And we all want justice to be done. What will God's justice look like? What will God's justice accomplish Let's see what Obadiah saw. First of all, God's judgment will humble the proud. God's judgment will humble the proud. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. 
The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Well, I wonder if anyone knows where this is. Anyone know where... Where's the picture gone? The picture's disappeared. Oh, I had a really nice image of Petra. Has anyone ever been to Petra? Yeah, Bethany's been to Petra. If you've been to Petra, you've basically been to the capital of Edom. You know, that place in the Red Rocks in modern-day Jordan. That is almost certainly Edom's capital city. Uh, No wonder that Edomites thought they were a pretty big deal. Imagine living in a place like that. You would have felt so secure, so splendid, so full of yourself. No enemies could touch you in your kind of rocky fortress. But God says, verse 2, you are going to be very small. God is going to bring them down right to the bottom. Verse 4, though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So he says to them, imagine that you didn't just live in Petra, a rocky fortress like that. Imagine that you're soaring above the sky like an eagle. Imagine you live in the heavens where the stars are. You are not beyond my reach, God says. And it is a picture of that other story from the Old Testament, of the Tower of Babel. Do you remember them, those proud builders who said to themselves, let's build a tower all the way to heaven so that we make a name for ourselves. They wanted to be secure forever, to be like God's. And God, what does he do? He comes down and he scatters them all across the face of the earth. God's judgment will humble the proud. It was true for Babel, it was true for Edom, and it is true today. Maybe one nation trusts in its skyscrapers of its banking capital. Maybe another nation feels secure because it's got a big army. Maybe another nation relies on its historical achievements or its diplomatic influence on the world stage. But the most powerful nations and institutions and people, they're no match for God. God says to them, I can make you very, very small in an instant. And that includes us. You see, look back again at verse 3. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. It's not just a problem for nations. It's a problem for individuals. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride tricked Edom into thinking that they were safe without God, but they were wrong. And it is easy for pride to trick us too. We might be uh, pleased because we're the sort of person who goes to church every week, or because we live a pretty decent life, or because we've succeeded at school or at work. But if we're proud and we live as if God doesn't exist, as if God couldn't touch us. And God says, you're in trouble. My justice can make you very, very small. God's judgment will humble the proud. Just look at what is coming on Edom, verse 5. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. God says a total disaster is coming. Nothing is going to be left and nobody is going to save you. 
So look at verse 7. Not your political allies, your friends, who you're depending upon. No, they're going to deceive you. They're going to hand you over. Not your wisdom or your cleverness. Uh, Verse 8. I'm going to destroy that, God says. I'm going to make all your plotting, all your planning absolutely useless. The battle is coming, God says, and the outcome is sure. sure. You're going to lose. Verse 9. Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified. Teman, probably a city somewhere in Edom. Everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. It's just like Jesus said. All who exalt themselves will be humbled. The world faces God's judgment because of its pride. But the thing with pride is it doesn't just stay inside. Pride isn't just something in our hearts or in our minds. Pride spills out of our our hearts And it makes us live in all sorts of ways which deserve God's justice. And that's the second truth about judgment that Obadiah sees. God's judgment will destroy all wickedness. God's judgment will destroy all wickedness, verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. So Obadiah opens up the history books and he says, do you remember what happened in 586 BC? You probably don't, but it's a pretty big event. The Babylonian Empire, the greatest nation and power on the earth at that time, defeated Jerusalem uh, in battle. They had been building up over the last 20, 25 years. God had said to his people, this is going to happen. The Babylonians are going to come. They're going to besiege your city. They're going to destroy you. And eventually it happens. And they come and they march off God's people into exile in Babylon. And they stay there in exile for 70 years. And the question is, what did Edom do when Babylon came? How did one brother nation treat the other brother nation? And the next few verses tell us in pretty gruesome detail. So look at verse 11. Some of them stood aloof. They just stood by and watched. It didn't bother them when they saw the Babylonians carry off all of uh, Judah's wealth, especially the treasures that were used to worship God in the temple. You go to the British Museum, you can see these amazing friezes, these stone uh, sculptures showing this, and you you see all the Babylonian soldiers with the kind of candelabra and and all sorts of other things. They're carrying them off, they're pillaging the the Jerusalem temple, and Edom is just standing there saying, doesn't bother me. What did others do? Verse 12, you gloated over your brother. You rejoiced over the people of Jerusalem. They had a party. They cracked open the best Edomite champagne. It was the best news they'd heard in years. Their brother was finally getting what he deserved. Some of them didn't just gloat, though, or watch from the galleries. What did they do? Verse 13, they joined in, marching through the gates of my people, seizing their wealth, Even worse, verse 14, you waited at the crossroads to cut down the fugitives, handing over the survivors to the enemy. Maybe some of the Edomites just saw what was happening and thought, I'm going to join in with that. Maybe others had been planning their revenge for years. Whatever happened, Edom didn't behave like a brother. Edom behaved uh, like an enemy. You see um, the punchline there is in verse 10. You were like one of them. 
Edom treated his brother in all sorts of wicked ways, and I'm sure he thought, I'll get away with it. I'm on the winning side. I've got my rocky fortress to live in. I've got my wisdom. But God sees it all, and God says, no, justice is coming. God's judgment will destroy all wickedness. Verse 15, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. I wonder if you notice that little repeated phrase through verses 11 to 14, the day of their misfortune, the day of their destruction, the day of their trouble, the day of their calamity. That is the day that Edom saw. That's all that Edom could see, that particular day, the day when justice fell on Jerusalem. But God says there's a far more important day coming. He only says it once, but it's much more important than that day that's repeated multiple times. The day of the Lord is near for all nations, the day when God will come to judge the world. Every court case depends on evidence, doesn't it, on forensics, on CCTV, on witness statements. Barristers present the evidence to the court. Juries decide whether someone is guilty or not. Judges hand down the sentence. But God is the barrister. He is the prosecuting attorney. He is the jury. He is the judge. And he sees all the evidence from every nanosecond of our lives. And he warns us and he says, judgment is coming. Verse 15, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Now that may be a dreadful story on the news that we've watched or read about. It could be something much smaller in our lives. God says no one will get away with sin forever. God will make sure that the sentence always matches the crime. And he says that, the sentence ultimately that matches our crime against God is death. Verse 16. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. I guess the Edomites had their champagne on Jerusalem when they parted with the Babylonians, but God says one day you're going to have to gulp down another drink. It is what the Bible calls the cup of God's wrath, God's anger, the justice that destroys forever. It is what Jesus described as a fire that never goes out, a place of outer darkness. And it is a frightening picture. But just imagine for a moment a world with no justice. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? It would be dangerous, it would be unfair, it would be an awful place to live. Now imagine eternity with no justice. It would be even worse. And so the news that God's judgment will destroy all wickedness is good news. We can be sure when we see awful things on the TV, or when we, when we experience dreadful unfairness in our own lives, that God sees it all, and that his perfect justice is coming one day. But justice by itself cannot be the end of the story. Because God won't just destroy all wickedness. God will destroy all wicked people. And that includes us for the pride in our hearts, for the wrong that we do. And so although the, the, the truth about God's justice coming is good news, it, is not the, it cannot be the final news. We must hear um, better news. The end of Obadiah's book. Thirdly and finally, God's justice will save his people. God's justice, God's judgment will save his people. Verse 17, but on Mount Zion, 
will be deliverance. It will be holy. So Mount Zion, that is the mountain in Jerusalem where the temple is. It is the, or where the temple was because the Babylonians destroyed it. But Mount Zion as a name, it comes to represent the whole city. And so God says, even though that city has been destroyed, even though that city has been made unholy, I'm going to make it holy again. In other words, I'm going to make it the place where my deliverance will come, where my people can be saved through judgment. Because we might think to ourselves, well, God's judgment is over here, and God's salvation is over here, and and I'm going to be saved in spite of his judgment. He's going to do his work of judgment over here, but somehow he'll sweep my sin under the carpet, and he'll kind of, he'll save me. But we're not saved in spite of judgment, we're saved because of judgment. We're saved because God does judge us in Christ, through Christ. That Jesus, in Jerusalem, on Uh, the mount of the skull, he faced the sentence of death in the garden. He he was trembling because of the cup of God's wrath that he was going to have to drink upon the cross. He faced it. He was judged so that we don't need to be judged. We were judged in him. We don't need to take a sip of the cup that he drank. And all we need to do is put our trust in him. I say all we need to do. It's a big thing to humble yourself enough to put your trust in Christ. But that is the simple thing we need to do. We don't put our trust in our rocky fortresses. We don't put our trust in our friends and allies. We don't put our trust in our wisdom and our cleverness. We put our trust in Christ, and we are saved forever. And that, I think, is the way the book finishes, um, with a picture of salvation painted um, in Old Testament colors. So verse 17, salvation is sure for God's people. You see that Jacob, that is God's people, will possess his inheritance. What will they possess? Well, they will possess the whole promised land, verse 19. And the Negev, that's the south, the land of the Philistines, the west, Ephraim and Samaria, the north, Gilead, the east. It's all going to belong to them. It's an Old Testament picture. It's like Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. Who are the meek? The people who don't puff themselves up and say, I can live my life without God, but the people who humble themselves beneath God. They will inherit the earth, the new creation, heaven. Salvation is sure for God's people. We will possess it because no sin can ever separate us from God's love. I think that's the idea of verse 20. So verse 20, this company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan, who are they? I think those are the Israelites who've been exiled not by Babylon, but by Assyria 150 years previously. They've been taken away and God says, your sin is going to be paid for and you're going to possess the promised land too. Or verse, uh, second half of verse 20, the exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, those are the ones who've been defeated by Babylon. You're going to possess your inheritance too. It's sure for you. God's love separate, God's love means we cannot be separated uh, from him. Our salvation is sure. So from Obadiah's perspective, we, we can't see it clearly yet, but we do see it when we look at Christ and we look at the cross. It's a little bit like uh, Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 21. Deliverers, saviors, will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom 
will be the Lord's. It's a wonderful little surprise. Even the mountains of Esau will be somehow incorporated into God's kingdom. Even some who were once God's enemies will be God's friends, saved by the deliverer, made holy and perfect in his sight, even people like you and me. So we all want justice to be done, don't we? But we do need to realise that we need to face God's justice too. God's judgment will destroy, will humble the proud and destroy all wickedness. And if you're here this morning and you think, I know I haven't yet put my trust in Jesus, today is a good day to do that. God's judgment will surely save his people. We don't deserve it, but Jesus faced death for us so we don't have to. Our pride and our wickedness will not be the last words. God's love and mercy and grace will be instead. Let's thank God so much for that. Shall we bow our heads and pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, the kingdom will be the Lord's. We pray for your forgiveness for the ways in which we try to make life all about us in our pride and the way that leads to, to evil and sin and wickedness in, in lots of different ways. Maybe not what we see on the TV, but nonetheless things that we know are wrong in your eyes in our, in our life. We thank you for Jesus who faced the judgment that we deserve so that we can be part of his kingdom, his eternal perfect kingdom forever and that we will possess heaven forever with him. If we ask it in his name. Amen.